This conversation between Natasha Chicha and Heather Rose was recorded at ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, at a special event for the Stella Prize. Produced by the Truala Foundation lead partner for ACCA's exhibition, Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism. I want to thank you all so much for coming tonight. I'm Aviva Tuffield, and I'm the Executive Director of the Stella Prize. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are meeting tonight on the traditional lands of the Bun Wurrung and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging and those of the Wurundjeri and other Kulins nations and to recognise that sovereignty was never ceded. I'd like to thank the Trawala Foundation for sponsoring this event for Stella and especially Carol Schwartz for her advocacy and support over many, many years. And I'd like to acknowledge... Yes. Thank you. I'd also like to acknowledge a number of important Stella ambassadors and donors in the room, including Catherine Andrews, Ellen Koshland, Paula and Rob McLean, Graham Anderson and Anita Absitis, Karen Marlab, Louise Walsh, Kerry Gardner, who is about to leave again, um, Sudan, Michaela Healy, Leo Neal, Christoph Taylor, Julie Riley, Amanda Buckley, Seri Rankin and Dan- Danny Bessel. Stella has so many wonderful friends, and hopefully we can make a few more here tonight and encourage some of you to join the Stella movement. And a new Stella friend for me is Dr. Natasha Chicha, who has kindly agreed to host the interview with Heather Rose tonight. Natasha is the CEO and director of Heidi Museum of Modern Art. She's also the founding director of Capacity.org, which works globally to help leaders, teams, and organizations deliver effective and sustainable change. Natasha has been recognized as one of Australia's 100 Women of Influence in the Innovation category and was an inaugural recipient of a Sydney Meyer Creative Fellowship. Her initiatives include Perfect Pitch, a professional development workshop for women to improve their confidence and effectiveness when speaking to groups, and Think Tent, a performance and dialogue-based project that she has delivered both in Australia and overseas. Please welcome Natasha. Thanks so much. And Natasha is going to ask me a few questions about Stella before we move on to our our special guest, our guest of honour, who is Heather Rose. So, Natasha, thank you so much for being here for this event. It's delightful to be here. And I'd like to thank uh, the author, Claire Wright, for ensuring that I'm sitting in this seat because she's writing her next book at the moment. And she said, oh, you're the obvious person. So I think that one thing that this circle of people has in common is a great generosity with each other, which is no longer a given in the times in which we live. So I really want to thank all of you for doing all that you do to support this prize and especially Carol and um, a big thanks to Max Delaney and ACCA for hosting it. It's lovely to be able to come to a sister or brother organisation and do the same kind of thing. So um, Aviva, uh, I think most people here do know about Stella but some won't. So could you just please tell us a little bit about its origins and uh, why it was started and when and by whom? Certainly, yes. Um, Thank you for asking. It's a leading question. It is a leading question. uh, um, So Stella is entering its sixth year, which is very exciting for us. Um, Stella was founded in 2011 because there was awareness among a group of um, writers, publishers, women working in publishing and bookselling that there was an underrepresentation of women authors um, in three key areas. One of the winners of the literary prizes in Australia. Secondly, is the authors of the books that got reviewed um, in the major leading newspapers and literary journals. And thirdly, um, as the authors of the books on the school curriculum. 
So um, we, had, we started to look at the evidence, and in that, at that time in 2011, the, the best-known literary prize, the Miles Franklin, had been going for 55 years and been won by only 11 women. Um, and we thought that was quite striking, but it was across all the prizes too. Um, it was generally about a third of the time women won the fiction prizes and even less for non-fiction. Um, and in terms of book reviews, as, you, as, as I've, I've told people before, it was a very striking disparity. It was 70% of the weekend of Australians' reviews of books by men, 80% of the Australian financial reviews and books... But, uh, reviews were books by men, something like even the monthly magazine, it was 74%. And the same thing across the school curriculum. And we felt this mattered. We felt it had a feedback loop that if um, women weren't winning the prizes and they, they weren't getting the reviews, and when curriculum developers were looking at which books to teach the young people, to teach the future generations, what was going to make part of the canon, they looked at which books were winning prizes, who was the books everyone was talking about in the media. Um, and so it sent messages to everyone, to the whole culture, but especially to the girls and boys about whose voices, whose experiences, and whose stories were most important. And we thought we can whinge about this and we can write a whole series of op-eds, or we can just do something positive. And we decided to start the Stella Prize, um, which aimed to celebrate Australian women's writing, to bring attention to a long list and a short list and a winner each year, to provide role models for emerging women writers um, and schoolgirls, and to really make a career-changing difference to one writer, to the winner. Like $50,000 was the prize money and that's a significant amount for a writer. It's hard to make a living as a writer. So that's in brief, and now we're here we are, six years on. So what are your proudest achievements and impact over the past six years? Oh, so much to be proud of. I mean, I'm proud of all the books that we've recognised on our long list. So with 60 books have been long-listed, 30 books have been shortlisted. We've had five incredible winners, including Claire Wright, who you mentioned. Um, We've given out 300, over $300,000 in prize money. But as much as anything, it's, it's gone beyond those books that we've recognised. And that's what I think is, is, is the incredible thing for me, is that it's actually changed the landscape. So I had writers coming up to me. Well, I had people in the beginning saying, I didn't realise there were so many women writers. I didn't realise women wrote nonfiction. And it's like, well, yeah, they were always there. We've just put the spotlight on them. Um, so, it, you know, so there was that. But I also had women writers who weren't even long-listed in the first few years coming and saying, You've made a, it's made an impact on my life. I feel my work is take, being taken more seriously. And we've actually seen the prize landscape change. So in this five years, the Miles Franklin has been won four times out of five by a woman. Um, and in its first, the first year Stella started in 2013, there was a first ever female long-list. They'd had two all-male long-lists from previous times. Um, so it's other prizes have taken note, and it's not just that there are women on those shortlists and prizes, it's kinds of books that are now being, being considered of the highest literary merit. The actual kinds of books have changed, something like Sophie Laguna's The Eye of the Sheep, which won the Miles Franklin a couple of years ago. It's a book about, from a child's perspective, it's a book about poverty, it's actually about sort of domestic violence, um, alcoholism. It's not the kind of book that would have been seen as a Miles Franklin winner a few years ago. So I think that, that for me, is the impact the prize has had. It's, it's changed the landscape. It's actually made, and maybe Heather can talk about this, it's, it's dealt with what I would call, and Cordelia Fine, who's someone who Carol works with a lot, she's a Melbourne psychologist, would call stereotype threat, that if people don't think they're going to achieve, it actually makes it hard for them to produce good work. So if you tell girls they're not going to do well in a math test, they don't do well. If they're told girls do great at maths, they... they they produce, you know, they do better. They do better work. They actually do better. And I think now that is an, um, a sort of growth and um, of a flowering of women writers because they feel that they're going to be celebrated and succeed. So I actually think there probably are more women writers writing really great works at the moment and winning prizes because if you 
put, if, it's why quotas work. If you put more women into different areas, more women, women do well in those areas. Sorry, that's a long answer. No, but it's a great <laughs> answer, and it's a, it's a lovely version of if you can't see it, yeah, read you it. you can't be it. <laughs> or write it, you can't be it. So, um, so, all that takes money, so how do you, how do you fund Stella? Well, Stella is a not-for-profit with DGR status, and it has no earned income stream at all. We don't own the books. We don't get money from the book sales. It's all about advocacy and changing the landscape. And one other of our great um, things I'm very proud of is we started a schools program, which has had a number of incarnations, um, including lobbying curriculum developers. And the Victorian government actually has 50-50 gender balance now, which is great on, their, on the VCE lists. But the schools program, we've managed to get grants and, um, and we run a Girls Write Up Festival, which is also supported. So it's, we're philanthropically funded. We had some great founding donors, of which Ellen Koshland, who's here tonight, is our founding patron. We got some seed funding. And we've managed to secure the prize in many different ways. But we, we are dependent on charitable trusts and foundations, family foundations. We've had money from the Australia Council, um, the Copyright Agency, National Australia Bank has supported the prize money in the past three years, including this year. Um, we, we've launched an endowment campaign to try and uh, secure the prize money in perpetuity, so that's sort of one aspect we don't have to fundraise for every year. So there is an endowment campaign, if um, anyone's interested, which was set up by two board members, um, Alan Koshland and, and Paula McLean, a board member. So it's, it's, it is a constant fundraising. We're always looking for operational funding, so... And if anyone, there's flyers around, but if anyone wants to talk about the opportunities, especially through the schools program, maybe, um, we're, we're always open to talking further. So what next, Javiva? Well, what next? Well, immediately what next is the 2018 Stellar Prize Award night on um, the 12th of April. Um, I still think there's work for the prize to do. The prize is has a symbolic impact, and as I say, it, has this, it ripples out through for other writers and through the culture and through um, young people seeing women writers doing well. The, the really heartening thing for me about this year's shortlist is how diverse and um, thoughtful and thought-provoking the cho choices are that our judges have made. And I think this really shows us that there's, we don't want any great books by, we don't want to leave any women writers behind or any great books by women writers to be overlooked. So I still think the prize itself can have an impact. Um, we really want to expand our Girls Write Up festivals, which are festivals for teens which look at the intersections of language, gender and power and how unconscious bias actually affects your sense of self. And they are outside of the school curriculum. They're all-day um, festivals with workshops which teach teens to discover their creative voice and have the skills and confidence to use them. So that's something we're taking outside of. We've had them in Sydney and Melbourne. We're now taking them outside to other states. And I just think generally there's still scope for Stella because we all know with all the sexual harassment campaigns and Me Too that even when women speak up, they're often not listened to. So I feel Stella has done some work towards showing the barriers and promote to women's equality and to, um, to breaking those down, but there's a lot more work to be done. Thanks so much. Thank so you. clearly there needs to be an R at the end of Stella. <laughs> um, and... I'll now ask Aviva to be to replace herself with Heather Rose, the the latest <laughs> star in the firm. Dan, Dan, can I move? Can I move this? Just might move the microphone so that I can look at Heather while I talk to her. <laughs> yeah, just didn't. Yeah, is that does that still? Am I captured? Great. Welcome, Heather. Thank I'll you, introduce, Natasha. I'll, she needs no introduction, but I will. 
The wonderful Museum of Modern Love is Heather Rose's seventh book. Her work spans adult literary fiction, children's literature, fantasy, sci-fi, and crime. Her previous novels include White Heart, which she wrote in 1999, The Gorgeous Butterfly Man, and The River Wife. She's also co-author with Danielle Wood, another Tasmanian, of the acclaimed Tuesday, oh, I can never say this, McGilly Cuddy series, is that right? For children, written under her pen name, Angelica Banks, which is published internationally. Heather's been the recipient of Varuna's Eleanor Dark Fellowship and was the inaugural writer-in-residence at the Museum of Old and New Art in Hobart from 2012 to 2013, and that's where she did much of the research for the Museum of Modern Love, quite appropriately. So, let's talk about the book. But first, let's talk about you. <coughs> I have a small confession to make, which is that I've known Heather for a long time, and we're both Tasmanians, and we both went to primary school in this really funny beachside suburb, which still has the rather unfortunate name Black Man's Bay. So, um, my question to you, Heather Rose, is why do you write? Hello, Natasha. Hello, everybody. I'll just think about that for a minute. Uh, and also, I know the sound is really bouncing around in here, so if you find that we're not close enough to the microphone. Can you just wave so that or we can, or fast? we need to be slower too, or whatever? Too fast. Maybe we're too fast. It's yeah. We're a bit excited. We're a bit excited. That's, why we're fast. That's right. Yeah. Why do I write? Because there are lots of thoughts in my head, and I have always found that writing made my brain quieter, and I think it's a way of literally calming my mind for me. I think it's a sort of meditation and. I have been passionate about writing as long as I've known that there were actual written words in the world. Um, my mother taught me to read when I was very young because my sister was born three years after me. And so my mum had me on her lap and she would read to me while she was breastfeeding my sister and I picked it up. So I, I picked it up very early and I was enchanted, entirely enchanted, and I knew instantly pretty much that that's what I wanted to spend my life doing and and so I have. Did, was there something about that glorious place that we both spent our childhoods in which was provided extra, extra inspiration for you? Yes, for me it, it's it's a it's an emotional landscape as well as obviously an, a spectacularly beautiful visual landscape Tasmania and uh, someone asked me a few years ago why Tasmanians were so creative. Why are there so many creative Tasmanians? And I said, and I didn't mean it flippantly. He took it flippantly. He was a Sydney journalist. I said, it's because we're not stuck in traffic. And the truth is we're not stuck in anything uh, down there other than community. Yeah. And community is an extraordinary gift. And as a writer and as an artist of any in any form, to have a community of like-minded people is such a rich well pool to draw from. And I have loved my life in Tasmania. I, I spent a long time away. In fact, I lived here in Melbourne for 10 years through my 20s. But uh, I find that 
it's the place of my soul. And so when I'm at home, I feel that I am more open to whatever wants to come through me. And I have a peace and quiet there that I'm very reclusive, actually. I'm quite a hermit. And I love that. It's the writing life. It's, it's the best way to have a writing life is to have lots and lots of seclusion, I've discovered, as my children have got older. And it's a, it's a privilege to live there. We are in a place that there's no war, there's no, well, there's conflict, but not of the sort or the scale that we see elsewhere in the world. And every day there is this extraordinary visual beauty. And that in itself is deeply inspiring for me. Well, I first met you, it must be mm, 13, maybe 15 years ago, when you had a business, an advertising business, <laughs> and you'd lost all your work, all your clients, because you had spoken out against the proposed pulp mill in Tasmania. And um, uh, what, what gives you that bravery, Heather? Because I think, I think the bravery and boldness is also reflected in your writing. So where does that come from in you? Because not everybody in Tasmania spoke up that way. So Natasha is referring to um, a situation back in... 2001 we had our first 10 days on the island art event and it was a big event and it, it, it brought people from all over the world from other islands in the world to Tasmania to perform in, in various mediums and the artists uh, of Tasmania put a, a letter in the paper asking the government to review its forest policy because it isn't just our visual landscape as I said it's our it's our emotional landscape and it's our creative landscape and the forest practices were horrific and continue to be, un they continue to threaten our, our wild places to this day. And two years, or about a year later, a journalist rang me and said, guess who is the new naming rights sponsor of 10 Days on the Island? And I said, who? And she said, Forestry Tasmania. And it was such a slap in the face to the artists. And it was a particularly interesting day for me because I'd actually been for a run on the beach where I now live and I was driving back down a very spectacular bit of highway in Tasmania and there was a log truck on the road and the log on the truck was so big it could only fit one log on this massive B-double semi-trailer. And it didn't have a, a, a... They put metal plaques on the back of them if they're going to the sawmill and if they're not, they're going to be chipped. And this tree was you know, I don't know, 900 years old. And it upset me so much. And I had a four-wheel drive in those days and I thought, I'm going to drive in front of this truck at the bottom of the outlet and I'm going to not move my car until journalists get here. And I'm going to just... I, I was enraged. I w it just got me on this particular day. And then a few hours later, the journalist called me. So I said what I really thought, which has got me into trouble before I can hear my father saying. And I said what I really thought, and it was on the front of the paper the next day. And then we, in 10 days, literally in 10 days, we raised over $50,000 in pledges from the community. And it was an extraordinary time, but it made me deeply unpopular. And the, the Premier of the day called me a cultural fascist in Parliament. It's really... <laughs> It's really hard to imagine that happening now in the same kind of way because after that Premier who shall remain nameless, there was Tasmania's first woman Premier, Lara mm -hmm. Giddings, and now um, the terrain has shifted mm -hmm. down 
in our home state, partly because of Mona, not wholly. So I'd like you, I think it's really apt, therefore, that Mona gave you a literal refuge while you were writing this book and a place of sustenance and you were able to spend every day talking to the gorgeous Mary Lanzade, who's <laughs> exactly. the librarian at Mona. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Because that mm. happened before Mona was the mm. international blockbusting phenomenon that it now is. Uh, how did that happen? What was that like for you? So the beautiful thing was that uh, it, it came very early. I started the novel because because of the, um, I've told this story before about finding a picture in the National Gallery of Victoria here of one of Marina's performances, Rhythm Zero, in Italy back in 1974. And that sent me on a bit of a, a, you know, a search and there wasn't very much on the internet about her, so I thought, oh, I'll just have to make it up. And I started writing this novel about an artist who had had this extraordinary career of performance art. And I was writing several other books at the time. I was writing The River Wife and uh, I had to finish that, so things got in the way. And then I kept looking around for research on this particular artist, but it was always written in Dutch or Italian or something that I did not read. And then one day someone said to me, you could go out to that new, you know that new gallery that, thing, that they're yes, going to build yeah. one day? Um, they're all in a warehouse out the back of Hobart, you know, the collection's out there and there's staff out there and there's an amazing librarian. And you never know, she, they might just have some books about Marina Abramovich. And so I went out and met with the librarian and I told her the idea about my novel and she said, oh, that sounds like Marina Abramovich. And it was the first time I'd heard her name spoken by someone else. And she said, oh, David collects her work and he, we have all the books that have ever been written about her. And so I literally worked in a storage cupboard, literally a storage cupboard that was no bigger than this little space here. And I was getting the, boxes, the books out of the boxes and going through them and... I, I knew then that I could do it. I, once I got the research, it just added so much depth to the whole story. And, of course, it opened a can of worms because there is so much to learn about Marina's life in order to put it into a book. But then when the gallery opened, uh, Mary, the beautiful Mary Lanza, the librarian, uh, I was working out in the library, and one day she said, you know, we, we're feeling a bit sorry for you. Would you like an office? <laughs> <laughs> and I was looking for a studio at the time because I didn't have a situation at home that I could work in. And I said, I'd love to, but, um, you know, can I make a contribution? And she said, no, no, David wants to give it to you. You're going to be our first writer in residence. And, and there I was every day in that extraordinary space. And it was such a gift because I literally made myself every day. There was another way I could have gone up flights of stairs, I made myself go out through the gallery every day so I remembered what art was, what it really felt like to be in a museum, what it really felt like to see people's minds on walls and in sculptures and, you know, the whole story of art is in, in every gallery there's this lineage of human thought and creativity that is so rich. So that was just beautiful, beautiful. Even though I had uh, I think 15 cloaca machines to go through first. And <laughs> they're the ones that make the poo. <laughs> so this book, is that fine? Can we, yeah. Feel free to not be embarrassed and just turn it off. No, it's quite good. It's like part of the performance. Yeah, exactly. We set that up. <laughs> so the book is about art and it's also about love. And so I'm quite taken with the idea of a museum being a site to foster 
the creation of love, which is partly why I do the job I do now at Heidi Museum of Modern Art. And my, the last great love of my life, there will be more, um, I met in an art gallery in Berlin. He walked up to me. And so I think that there's something special and magical about a museum of modern art if it's done right. And it's wonderful that we're sitting in one now, which yeah. is done so beautifully. Why did you want to write about love? How did you want? How did you write? How did you decide to write about love? Because it can be the hardest, the most difficult topic of all. I think all of us write about love. Do we? Yeah, I do. But I why think not we write an write art history love. book about Marina Abramovich? Another one. Ah, oh, that's a great question, and it would have been easier. Um, it would have been much easier to do that. Uh, I think I was so inspired by a woman who could both literally take off all her clothes and lie on blocks of ice and whip herself, cut the, the communist star into her stomach, but also had the kind of heart that would walk 3,000 miles to meet the man that she loved, still loved, to say goodbye to him. And that, that paradox in us where we, um, where we yearn for something greater in our lives, but at the same time we're captured by just the simple effect of our humanity, which is for connection. And I, I've always been interested in that. I, I, think, I think the truth is, Natasha, I, I, after writing seven novels, you start to understand some of the threads in your work, and you can't see that for a long time as the writer. But I think all my books are about love, and they're also about death. Marina Abramovich is a specific case. She's, she herself, as a persona, is not an easy woman to love. What do you mean? <laughs> oh, can we do the... Well, <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, why, Marina, of all the women who you could have fastened upon to make your... She's kind of a superheroine, and yet not. Of all the women in the world, why did you choose Marina Abramovich? She got me. She just got me. But how did she get you? That picture, that picture on the wall in the NGV and the little, it was the descriptor beside it, it wasn't the photograph that got me, it was the descriptor about that she had made herself passive for six hours in a gallery from 8 a.m. 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. and the audience could do whatever they wanted to her and she put 72 items on a table and then it said uh, that she did the walk with Ulay and... It touched my heart so much to think that a woman could be so brave and yet also so vulnerable at the same time in both instances. And that inspired me a great deal. And I thought, so... And I instantly thought, there's a character for a novel. I didn't think about it being Marina Abramovich because, quite honestly, unless you were in very high art circles, she wasn't in any way a household name as an artist. She became really famous because of The Artist is Present, but I'd been writing that book for five years by then. I know. It's a little bit spooky, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit spooky. There are so many more degrees of spookiness that there we'll get are. to in a minute. <laughs> yes. um, the name of the novel... Would you like to explain how that came to you this and where it came to you? Good. So the book for a long time uh, it had various different titles and I used to talk about it as the Marina novel, but the, the title it went to the publishers with, it was rejected, let me tell you, by a number of publishers, both here and in America, but the title it had in that process was called the, it was called The Atrium because The Atrium is not just 
the gal you know, the central part of a gallery, or even in architecture, it's the central part of a building, but it's also a chamber of the heart. So it had a beautiful duality to me. And the then uh, Alan and Unwin picked it up, Jane Porfriman picked it up as a title. And she uh, loved the book and obviously wanted to publish it, but she said, you need to change the title. It's too cold for what you've written about. So I happened to be on Bruni Island where a dear friend had offered me her house on Bruni Island. Because I, because I was in <laughs> Belgrade. Because she's in Belgrade because she is Serbian. <laughs> and, it's so weird, isn't it? Yeah. And Natasha was going back to Serbia and, and, uh, and she her house was going to be sold and there was a, 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 you know, a period of time between her leaving and it going to be sold. And I said, Natasha, I really need a writing studio. Would you let me have the house? And she said, absolutely. So I went down to Natasha's house a number of times, spent some fabulous time there. It's the most magnificent position. It's, uh, it's on North Bruny and the view is west and north and you get this incredible sunset panorama every day, like sunsets that I'd never seen before, looking over the Don and up the Don River. And I sat at the dining table working away and I put the finishing which is, touches... Which is now in my flat in Parkville. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. I'm very fond of that table. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm sitting there doing the final, final changes to the novel that the publishers had asked for. And I completed that. And then I thought, oh, wow, I've really got to solve the title. And titles are tricky. Yeah, they're really, really tricky. And I started writing a list and then the Museum of Modern Love came out. And I thought, oh, I like that. I like that. And actually, I rang my girlfriend, Danielle, that I co-write the children's series with, and she's one of my great mentors in writing. She's uh, the head of creative writing at the University of Tasmania. And I said, Danielle, I, I think it's called the Museum of Modern Love. And she went, yes. And then I put down the phone and I thought, oh, I wrote the Museum of Modern Love. And it had some resonance with me in a way that I could never have imagined. It just felt like it belonged in the world in some way that... I didn't understand yet, and I was quite struck by it. And so there it is. It's become the Museum of Modern Love. So thank you for oh, your home. It, it's so great. This is the it's first spooky. time we've seen each it's other really since. Spooky. It's yeah. spooky. And all this was happening, and I had no <laughs> idea. Meanwhile, I'm living in downtown Belgrade, trying to find my soul, and not far from the Abramovich family flat in Makadonska Street. So there we were living these parallel threads of the same story. So have you have you been to Belgrade? You've got to come. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Um, So uh, what about what about meeting Marina? Have you have you met her? How many times? What was it like? What was the first time like? Did she scare you? She terrifies me. Why and she... I, I ran away from her, actually. Why? She, I did meet her briefly, very, very briefly. Um, a mutual friend introduced us at Mona because there was the big show down at Mona yeah, a few yeah, years yeah. ago. And I was so excited that, you know, I walked into Mona. And, you know, obviously I'd, I'd spent a lot of time at Mona by this stage, but I was so excited because there was this massive Marina Abramovich typed on, you know, printed on the wall and there's a hilarious photo of me, you know, being silly. And uh, I was so excited that everything had come to Hobart because the very day Marina arrived in Hobart and the show opened was the day Jane Palfreyman from Alan and Unwin said that she would take the book. 
So it was an incredible day for me. And I was like, wow, that's a really cool bit of serendipity. And so I drank um, maybe five champagnes. And I don't normally do that, but I was very happy. And I was standing under the crystals. Marina went through a crystal phase, which is quite funny. And I remember her curator when I met him in New York said that was a very silly phase. But um, she, she had these big crystals and I'm standing under one of these crystals and someone mentions to me that Marina has just walked past and I thought, fine, I don't have any desire to meet her. Because for me, she's a character in my book. It's like breaking the fourth wall. Like, she doesn't... She's, she's, yeah, it's very yeah, strange. I get it, I get it. It's very strange if the characters in your book come to life. And, uh, and then, then the mutual friend saw me and he took me over to introduce her. And she suggested I come with them, which was very gracious of her. But I was aware that I'd had a lot to drink and I wasn't sure I wanted to be with the character in my novel, quite honestly. And uh, the... Then Marina turned around and she looked at me with that kind of precision that she can do. And I think she assessed my sort of state. And she says, she said to me, have you counted the rice? <laughs> and I said, no. And she said, you must count the rice. And I looked at her and went, okay. And I just went in the other direction and I thought, I have drunk far too much to count the rice. I am just going to run away. And I did run away. And... It was, it's been a difficult part of the book to deal with a live Serbian, powerful, very powerful New, yeah, yeah, New yeah, York yeah, woman. Yeah, yeah. But I have dealt with her director a great deal, so I constantly sent them um, drafts as they emerged, and I didn't want any legal issues, so I was very, very careful to make sure she was always well informed what was going on. And, uh, you know, she, it was a great relief to me when I got feedback that said she loved the book and they've been superb with me. They've been so supportive. So she's a spectacular woman. I mean, who would allow some unknown writer from the far reaches of the world to write about you and your story and your art and and, ne and not put any caveats on it? Well, probably Marina Abramovich. Yes, yeah. yeah. probably the only person in the other. world who might do that with no ego. There was just no ego in that. It's incredible. Well, when we do the launch of your book in Belgrade, which has to happen because she has a kind of cult status there, which almost eclipses Novak Djokovic. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> wow. and the Museum of Contemporary Art Belgrade is open again now and her show is coming there next year. So oh, lock it in your diary. It'd be really interesting to see if you find her to be different in that context, which is a kind of town full of really powerful women. Um, I'm wondering how much of the way Marina frightens people is simply because she's of Serbian background and had these parents who were partisans who kept pistols by their beds. I had an aunt like that, but she didn't keep a pistol. Um, so, so to me, having lived there, that, that kind of power in speech and presence is more common than in the new world, if you like? What, what do you think? That's why I really want you to come there. But yeah. what do you think about that? I think that she's probably an incredibly warm, gregarious, mm. effervescent person in, in real life. And I, I've certainly met enough people who've talked about her in those terms that uh, I think once I got past the awkwardness of talking to a character from my book. Because the other part of that is it's very difficult to then realise that I got it wrong. 
because she might do or say things that the, that marina that's in the Museum of Modern Love might never do. But, you know, I can let go of that now. It's finished. I can't change it now. What do you think about her autobiography, which came out mm. after your book? Mm, it was really interesting because yeah. I, I, this weekend I reread your book and then reread the autobiography, which is called Walk Through Walls, and it was really weird having them contrapuntally in my head. Um, and, of course, it was controversial in Australia because of the way Marina wrote about her experience with Indigenous Australians in the mm. 1970s. It caused mm. a minor furore, especially on social media. What, what do you think? Was that weird? Uh, so I, I was one of the people who supported the Institute, so I got the book as part of... My, the crowdfunding, yeah. um, it came, and I haven't read it. <laughs> I haven't read it. I, I actually, look, I, I spent 11 years writing the book, uh, 11 years thinking about her every day pretty much in some form or other, and when the book arrived, I, I actually thought, I'm so over Marina Abramovich. <laughs> and don't tell her I said that. But um, and I, She's not going anywhere. No. <laughs> She's not Even going. after death, she'll still be with us. She'll still be with mm. us, that's right. Mm. And I did love James Westcott's uh, biography of her, and it was incredibly useful for me mm. for writing the book. But Walk Through Walls, I still see it sitting there. I have this beautiful hardback, slip-cased special edition. Yeah. And I don't want to open it up because I, I think I'll worry that there are things I could have done or should have done. And I know my inner critic well enough. Well, I, as your outer critic, having <laughs> just reread both books, I can say you've got nothing to worry about. Really? Yes. Oh, that's yes. great, Natasha. I yes. haven't met anyone who's read it. Yes, I've read it. Oh, that's <laughs> yes. good. Yes. Um, I think it'd be really nice to have some questions from the floor. There's a roving microphone. And Carol can go first, because frankly, clearly, Heather and I could just sit here all day and go on as though none of you was here and talk about whatever we That's want, right. but it'd be great to hear from Carol. Thanks, Natasha. Great, great questions and great conversation. Thank you very much, both of you. Heather, I'm fascinated that you can write more than one book at once. Mm. How do you do that? Well, I don't get bored that way, Carol. <laughs> I, just, I find that if I'm if I have several projects on the go, I can spend you know Monday and Tuesday working on the new novel that I'm working on, and then I'll slip over to the children's new series and do that. Because for me, um, I, I give my, myself very intensely to my work, but there's an exhaustion point uh, that will happen, and so if I then have something else to go and focus on, it feels like a rest. So when I come back to the ne the, that novel again, I, I feel like I've had a break, even though I've actually been writing something else. So it's actually a really nice way for my brain to work. And quite honestly, writing the children's books is a great way to remember to have fun. And to uh, there's a freedom I found in writing for children about imagination and creativity that's had such a beautiful flow-on effect to my writing as an adult. So I'm having a lot more fun. And, I, and that did happen towards the end of working on Museum of Modern Love too. There was part of it, the, the scene where Archie decides to sit in the apartment and he puts Pillow Marina across the table. Uh, that, that definitely came out of starting on those children's books and having fun and, and feeling like, well, what do characters do when they're not being serious and thinking about art and then they're just living their lives? So it is a lovely way to work for me and it keeps me constantly entertained. Have you ever done Pillow Marina? 
at home. <laughs> I, I did a lot of sitting. I didn't make a pillow marina, but I certainly practised sitting to see what would happen to my body and, when, and my mind, of course, most importantly. But, yeah, how much pain I'd go into. What happened to your mind? Uh, it gets busy. It gets okay. very busy. It's easier to sit with Marina than just to sit on my own, unless I'm meditating, of course. But I do a lot of meditation. So if you're, if you're not meditating, it's, it's busy. But if I drop into a meditative space, I'm very happy generally. So if you're writing, are you in that meditative space? Mm, is it something exactly that comes the same. out of you? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I there, so. yeah, it yeah. is. I'm fascinated same by that, I have to say. Mm. Yeah, same for mm. you, yeah. Mm. Who else? Who else? Who else finds their questions. creative process meditative? Yeah. 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 It is a beautiful way to channel the mind. I love all these pictures in the it's, background. It's gorgeous. And this thing in the middle. Yes. Um, which is made by Emily Floyd. I'm right, aren't I, Max? who, of course, has the beautiful sculpture in front of Heidi. So it's just lovely. I feel like literally as well as, as um, metaphorically, a lot of circles are closing tonight. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I hate to interrupt you, but I want to ask a question. Hi. Please. Yeah, on the Stella board, so I've got a bit of a stake in this question. But, Heather, could you tell us a bit about what winning the prize has meant to you? Obviously, um, it's taken up a terrific amount of your time, which you might have wanted to spend writing. But how do you deal with that? I mean, we've got you out doing all these wonderful shows and talks, and you've been so generous with your time. But where do you go next? Where do you go to quieten down and find the next inspiration? Look, thank you so much for asking that, because... Um the Stella has been the, the most beautiful gift for me as a writer. I, it's my seventh novel, The Museum of Modern Love. I've been, uh, I've been writing since I was three. <laughs> I actually wrote my first novel when I was 21 and I put it in a drawer because I knew it was very bad and it was um, a bit disappointing to realise that I was a long way from being the sort of writer I wanted to be. I wrote my second novel uh, in my mid-twenties and again, I... I, uh, I put it aside, actually, to start Whiteheart, which became my first published novel. And through all of the novels, I was always very aware that despite the fact that they uh, had very small readerships generally, The Butterfly Man had a bit of a breakthrough, but mostly they were, um, they were quietly received by some very devoted readers in Tasmania and maybe one or two on the mainland. Uh, the, the gift of not having any kind of notoriety as a writer is an incredible one when you're starting your career because it allowed me to experiment a great deal, to write what I wanted to write, to, uh, you know, to get better at my craft. And it's a hard thing to do. Any of you who are artists or know artists or live with artists, it's so hard to get good at something. And... Writing is the hardest thing I do. I've done lots and lots of other things in life, but writing is the thing that challenges me more than anything. And I still, every day, find myself grappling with the craft of it, the craft, you know. And, and what the Stella has done is not only has it brought my novel into national attention and 
um, and given me income, income. And this is the first, this last year since the Stella Prize and also Australia, the Australia Council gave me a grant. That was the, the first time I'd received a grant. I'd applied 10 times over 23 years. And I got an Australia Council grant at the beginning of last year to write my new novel, uh, the first draft of that. And then the Stella Prize meant that I could live as a writer for the first time in my life. I've had to do many, many other things, mostly run quite large businesses and, you know, demand, the demands of, of earning income to be a mother of three children. So the, the gift of time was extraordinary. But beyond the gift of time, and obviously the gift of enormous encouragement, has been the sense that what I'm doing has validity and merit and I found myself writing more freely than I've ever written in my life. And I had to talk, I talked to Danielle about it through the year. I said, I'm a bit unsettled because I'm just writing and it's kind of okay on the first draft. I, I don't know if I'm a bit delusional or not, but, and she said, you, you know, this is what happens. You will never go backwards now. You, you, you've been given this incredible opportunity to, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of courage I've been given this sense of courage that my writing has a place in the world. And I didn't know that before the Stella Prize. I really didn't know that. And to have the kind of response from readers that I've had this last year, and uh, in fact, in truth, I didn't really understand how popular the book had got until I went to Perth Writers' Festival a couple of weeks ago, and we were in the big marquee, and some of you might have been. It's, it sort of holds you know, it's open, it's open air, it's got a, a, a roof and it's in a kind of amphitheatre of lawn and there would have been at least 400 people there and it was a beautiful, beautiful day and I was in conversation with Geordie Williamson from The Australian and he asked the audience, you know, so we knew where we could go in the conversation, how many of them had read the book and the first 300 people put up their hands. <laughs> And it really stunned me. I got really teary. I, I had no idea. And they were also proud of being people who'd read the book, which was super beautiful to see how enthusiastic they felt. Like, they were like a community, suddenly, of people who had done this, this book together. And it was so touching as a writer. I'll never forget it. So the gift of the Stella has been extraordinary. I hope I never get over it. And the the longevity of this prize, I think that matters such a lot. I, I feel as if it's given Australian women writers a sense of our own place in the writing world that we didn't have here in Australia before. We had little moments, we had Miles Franklin, we had Eleanor Dark, we've had Helen Garner, we've had some beautiful, magnificent Elizabeth Jolly, brilliant, brilliant Australian women writers, but they have not received the kind of acknowledgement or appreciation or readership or readership in schools that the men have received. And the Stella has, as, as Aviva has said, has done the most extraordinary job of starting to redress that imbalance. But more than that, what I notice is when I go talk with students uh, and I'm watching students, I've done a lot of school talks, and I'm watching students, girls and boys, kind of go, oh, wow, women write. And women write really good books and, oh, we're going to study women writers. And they're searching and they're hungry. And for them, it's becoming the norm that women write in Australia like men write in Australia. Now, we have yet to redress the housework imbalance because I think there's a whole story there for women writers 
and for all women artists, um, and the raising of children and the caring for the aged, which still lies heavily on the, on the shoulders of women in Australia. And unfortunately, when you work from home, it seems that you are meant to be available a great deal of the time for all those things. But the Stella has done the stellar thing of starting to make it feel as if Australian women writers are just as powerful, are just as influential, have just as much a voice, and have just as much of a contribution to play in the conversation in Australia. And that's spectacular. Well, see, I don't think of this as an Australian book. For me, it's very much a world book. So it's like Heather Rose's voice operating on a world stage. So the bits of it around New York felt right to me and, as importantly, the bits about Belgrade felt right to me and that is really, really, really hard to do. I'm so um, thrilled yeah, to know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so I was... I was tra it, was, it transports me right back there, as I said. I know that street very well, but just the way you're using the English language... Um, when you're talking, when you're actually doing dialogue coming out of a dead Serbian partisan is very uncanny, Heather. She came almost <laughs> first. Danica, she's probably hovering <laughs> that above us that. now. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Lou. Um, look, it is a fabulous book. I must say, um, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I was a bit reluctant to read it and, and a friend who recommends book pushed me to read it and I just absolutely adored it. So I have to say congratulations. But Thank you. Any hints on the next one? I'm sort of dying to know <laughs> what's so, in store next. Well, I'm very amused by this because, as I said, the Australian Council gave me a grant and I've applied ten times, including for the Museum of Modern Love. Uh, so what did the Australia Council in this particular political climate give me a grant for? They gave me a grant to write a political satire. Set in? Hobart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, in what era? Uh, just slightly forward, slightly to the side. Forward from, the, from now? Mm. Oh, gosh. I'm having a lot of fun. <laughs> does, it, does it have a working title? It's called Hobart City of Love. <laughs> right. <laughs> and have you been given another um, space in Mona to no, write? No, no, I don't need to. Don't I need now to have the most own. fantastic writing studio in my own home. So I'm happy, very, very happy. And when's it due to be with us? Well, I have my stellar writing retreat, thanks to Carol and Alan, um, at Truala, uh, down here in, on the Victorian coast. So that starts in April. So I have three delicious weeks of writing. Uh, and I'm hoping that by the end of that, I'll have a first draft that I can send to my agent at least. And I've I wrote last year, just to show you, so it took me 11 years to write the Museum of Modern Love. And yes, I did write the children's series through that, which are all 50,000 words each. And I did write The River Wife. And, and earned money and raised your children. Yeah, and, all and of that. Had a exactly. life. But in one, year, yeah. in one year, having got the money that I got so that I could support myself and my daughter, uh, I wrote 80,000 words of a non-fiction collection and I wrote 263,000 words towards the new novel. So what's your... What's your typical writing day, Heather? How does it look, you and your relationship with the desk? So I get my perfect writing day, because they don't always happen this way, 
My perfect writing day is I get out of bed and I put on my dressing gown and I go straight to my desk in my pyjamas and I don't get up until about two o'clock in the afternoon. So you sit there, qua Marina Abramovich, the artist is fully present. I am the artist that is fully present and I like to start about six o'clock in the morning. I love to start when the sun is coming up. And then I find that if I'm allowed to drop in and there are no distractions, that I'll easily do six hours um, without even thinking. It'll just go like that. And uh, if I'm allowed longer, then I'll get up and make some food then. And then I could easily continue. I might go for a walk at that point because I live on the beach, so it's very beautiful. Uh, go for a walk, stretch my body, and then come back. And I could easily write till 11, 12 o'clock at night again then. I really love writing. <laughs> We're all so glad. We're all so glad. Um, thank you, Heather. And uh, thank you, everybody. And I think Aviva wants to say a few closing words. Is oh, that right? And can or? I say, can no? before no? Aviva gets up, can I please just make an acknowledgement? This is actually my last event as the 2017 winner. And Aviva has shepherded me through this year. I know she's stepping down as the director, but Aviva, I want to thank you in front of everyone for really, thank you. And I'll, um, and before I, before I hand over to Aviva um, to close, yeah, really. I'll also um, remind everybody that Heather will be in the foyer after the event and she will be available to sign books and there will be copies available for purchase. So, um, and she'll be available to talk further because this, uh, this discussion feels like it's flown in, a, in the you know, flap of a butterfly wing or something <laughs> that you might write better than me. <laughs> You've said that I, I did want to draw attention to the fact that um, Heather will be retiring her crown. This is her last formal event. We will be handing the baton over on the 12th of April to the new um, winner, but to thank you for everything you've done for Stella too. And I also privilege. want to thank Natasha again for doing this evening, this evening for us. And Carol again, Trialer Foundation, not only for the Grass Trees Retreat, which we heard about, for, but for this evening, for everything else that you and Alan do. And thank you all for coming. Yeah. Thanks. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.